1: Not only do you upgrade to FAIR, you're also joining a reliable network you can trust to have your back. No hidden requirements, no activation fees. Now that's FAIR. Learn more at uscellular.com.
2: Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large at Recode. You may know me as someone who would run for president just to prove that I'm more popular than Bill de Blasio. But in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network, Today, we're gonna play an interview from this year's Code Conference. Ezra Klein and I interviewed politician, Stacey Abrams and Fair Fight CEO, Lauren Gro Wargo. As you probably know, Abrams ran for governor of Georgia last year, losing to sitting Secretary of State, Brian Kemp. The election was very close and deeply controversial. And even though she was suspicious of the outcome, Abrams said she refuses to use the term stolen election.
3: The minute it becomes about me or a single election, we miss the point. This is about whether voters' voices can be heard. It's about whether citizens are allowed to be voters. And the moment it becomes about a single politician, if you like the politician, it's good. If you dislike the politician, it's a non-issue. This is about our democracy, and that's got to constantly be the return. You can
2: find full coverage of this interview and everything else from the Code Conference at vox.com recode. But now let's go to the Phoenician Resort in Scottsdale, Arizona, to hear Ezra and my interview with Stacey Abrams and Lauren Wargo. So we want to bring here, Lauren is not as well-known as Stacey, obviously been on television, ran for governor, but Lauren was the, I don't want to say the brain's of the operation, because you both have incredible brains, but um, was behind the scenes, ran your campaign.
3: Correct. The word you're looking for is mastermind. Mastermind,
2: exactly. <laughs> and now you guys are doing this thing. We're going to get to politics and things like that, but I'd love it, Lauren, why don't you start, about what you guys are doing. you You had this campaign, you ran it, Uh, did not win, but we can get into that in a minute. You guys then decided to do this. So explain what Fair Fight is.
4: So Fair Fight came out of the 2018 election when about 50,000 people in Georgia contacted our campaign about problems that they had voting. Mm -hmm. And we knew we were up against Brian Kemp, who was the sitting secretary of state and as the Voting Rights Act was gutted. He was the most aggressive secretary of state in the country in rolling back voting rights in particular for people of color. So we knew going into it that we were up against a guy with a horrible track record on voting rights and had been changing the rules to make it harder. So we were pretty prepared for that, all things considered. We can talk about that, um, how we were prepared. But even knowing all of that, the level of scenario we got into, Uh, late and early vote and on election night and in the days after, was an unbelievable miscarriage of justice and violation of the rights of Georgia voters. So through those 50,000 people that contacted us in a race that Kemp won by 54,000 votes, we started learning in the 10 days after the election. Many of you will remember that the AP did not call our race for 10 days, it's gonna be on by gravestone. We kept the race from being called for 10 days because we insisted that every vote be counted. Mm -hmm. And uh, Stacey stood up and said that, and we took our entire $42 million campaign apparatus, and at 2 a.m. when she made that speech, we turned it into a provisional ballot chase, um, a conversation with voters and elections officials about ensuring that every vote was counted. So through that, and in those days, uh, as we were preparing to figure out what Stacey was gonna do and how we were gonna determine the next steps after tracking out every possible vote we could, we were faced with a choice on how we were going to proceed. So I had many fully drafted lawsuits on my desk and we had to decide which one we were gonna file. So I'd hired every lawyer in Georgia to figure out what we were gonna do um, and had an incredible war room at that point. So Stacey decided that she wanted to proceed with the federal suit, because we thought if we took a suit to the federal court, not to change the election outcome, but to fight on behalf of Georgians, whose right to vote had been violated, to fix future elections, to make it more fair, that we could take what at that time was only 50,000, which we knew if 50,000 people contacted us, that meant, 50,000 people meant to contact us, but forgot or got busy. 50,000 people didn't know to contact us. So we knew that there was this immeasurable number of people who had suffered. And so we took that and we took a 501C4 that we had formed many years ago and repurposed it. a Civic engagement organization joined with Ebenezer Baptist Church and many other co-plaintiffs to file litigation that says, we're asking the federal court to deem the Georgia election system unconstitutional and that people of color are disproportionately
2: targeted. Okay, so Stacey, why this? Talk about why you decided to do this, because obviously you've had some, apparently, some job offers or some things (laughs) which you're going to sort out for us. But um, why did you want to do it this way?
3: So, as Lauren described, you know, election night, election couldn't be called. Ten days later, we knew that there had been a number of irregularities, things we'd known about for for years, but it came into sharp relief, and my two choices, one was to file a contest, which would be to overturn the election, and the other would be to file a lawsuit that would fix future elections. My commitment to the question of voting rights began with my family. My parents were both involved in the civil rights movement, but for me, voting rights has always been a means to an end. You cannot have true freedom without the right to vote. You cannot get healthcare, you can't get education, you apparently still can't have reproductive health and reproductive rights even if you have the right to vote. Um, But that all of those rights are underpinned by the right to vote. And when I think about the infrastructure of America, if you think about progress, the the three components are being able to access the right to register, the ability to access a ballot, and the ability to have that ballot counted those are what we call our voting rights and those are under attack and my campaign was not singular we weren't the only campaign that was in a state where voter suppression was real we just happened to be the only one that was facing a cartoon villain who you know happened to run you know was the referee and the you know architect of the system and he also got to be the contestant and the scorekeeper and so we had the most dramatic example but the fundamental issue was Without securing the right to vote, without making it sacrosanct and real, the rest of the policy initiatives that we hold to be necessary and important never come to fruition. And that's not only true for Democrats. This is not a partisan issue. In the state of Georgia, we had a Republican primary that had to be held three times because of the incompetence and the challenges that come when you start to erode and corrode the voting system. And so fair fight action is not my full-time job, Lauren is the CEO, but I'm the founder because I believe that we have to tackle head-on the most existential crisis in our democracy, which is the distance that we are creating between citizens and the right to vote. There's also this question.
5: <laughs> There's also this question, um, laddering up to the national scene of, even when you can vote, does your vote matter? So, the President of the United States um, was the runner-up in the popular vote. The Senate is controlled by the party that got fewer votes in the last three elections. Um, The House could have gone the other way despite Democrats winning the popular vote if it had been a little bit closer. Um, The Supreme Court reflects that. Is America
3: a democracy? Yes, (laughs) but we have to remember that we're vulnerable. Democracy is resilient, but it is always vulnerable and we have in our country sort of operated on an autopilot where we presume it will always be so because it has always been thus but that assumption has only ever been made by one singular population and that's basically white men everybody else has been fighting to get there and so for those of us who have come late to the conversation we've always been aware of the fragility of democracy and the fragility of our voices which is why it is so important that we fight even harder in a moment where it's coming into sharp relief because the demographic changes that we're facing, and the, and that's not just racial dem- demography, it's age demography, it's the shifting of populations from the Midwest to the South. All of those pieces are changing how our politics are lived. And so yes, we have a democracy, but that democracy is constantly in need of refreshing and protection, and we have forgotten that part of our responsibility. So
2: your, the lawsuit you got moved forward, correct? Where is it now? Yeah. So not surprisingly, the
4: state tried to kick us out of court. And not surprisingly, we kicked their ass. And um, (laughs) that's what we do. That's our name. Fair fight. We fight. That's what I do. And so uh, we have an incredible legal team and incredible staff. And not only did the state have their motion to dismiss denied, it was denied in a beautiful 85-page order that used our own language back to us from the court. And this is really important in terms of voting rights. A, the standing issues in the suit are really important. Stacey Abrams, a candidate, our campaign, is not a plaintiff in this suit. These are grassroots civic organizations that represent domestic workers, that represent Martin Luther King's home birth church, churches around the state, civic organizations. The court agreed with us that because those organizations work to engage voters and educate voters, they have standing because of future harm this could do to them. And so that's important for organizations in Florida and Tennessee and Texas that are facing unbelievable onslaught on the right to vote that this federal judge has has granted standing and agreed with us in terms of standing. So there's a whole series of things. Uh, Brian Kemp is now the governor. Not surprisingly, as governor, he has not talked about this issue. He has not talked about 29,000 provisional ballots that were given out, 29,000 mainly African-Americans in the state where he is governor, don't know if their vote was counted. They map like a racial map of the state of Georgia. You plot those 29,000, it's a map of African-American neighborhoods. This governor has never looked people in the eye to explain that. And he put a bunch of crap legislation through legislature and said, oh, I fixed it, here we go. And the court says,
2: nope, buddy, you didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, that didn't work. So what's the goal? What is the goal for you all to do? Because a lot of people, have this idea of the stolen election, and it keeps doing that. Is that
3: look? I, you, I I don't call it a stolen election. Others do. Others do, and I, I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> but but I that's not the language I use because the minute it becomes about me or a single election, we miss the point. This is about whether voters' voices can be heard. It's about whether citizens are allowed to be voters. And the moment it becomes about a single politician, if you like the politician, it's good, if you dislike the politician, it's a non-issue. This is about our democracy, and that's, that's gotta constantly be the return. We've gotta get back to the fact that politicians are elected to be representatives of the people's needs. And if they cannot engage in their system, if they cannot have their voices and their values heard, then we do not have a democracy. And so no, it is, it is not about the election. The election was, was a marker on what I would argue has been a 20-year story of irregularities and intentionalities in diminishing the right to vote in the United States. Because it didn't start with Georgia. You've got Wisconsin, you've got Texas, you've got North Carolina, you've got Michigan, you've got Pennsylvania, you've got New York <laughs> – You've got states that have systematically denied access to the right to vote, and until we correct those wrongs, we do not have a thriving democracy in our country.
5: You're touching on something, though, that has begun to concern me pretty deeply. You said a couple minutes ago, this isn't a partisan issue, but it is. The Republican Party has begun to see that its interests coincide with less democracy. Um, Somebody made the point to me recently that you can't possibly imagine bringing the voter age down from 21 to 18, in today's America because young people are democratic and Republicans would never permit that. When you think about the Electoral College, it has a similar flavor to it. When you think about Puerto Rico and DC and potential statehood there, it has a similar dimension to it. It seems to be a pretty dangerous place to be in as a country that democracy is becoming a partisan issue, that it's seen as something that if you're going to expand the franchise, good for Democrats, and if you're gonna contract it, good for Republicans.
3: So let me be clear, I said democracy, the corrosion of our democracy isn't partisan. The purveyors of most of the voter suppression absolutely are partisan. It has been a long standing intent of the Republican Party to silence the voices of those who are not likely to be a member of their party, and that means young people, people of color, and you know, those are their two main targets, primarily people of color, because race is the strongest predictor of political leanings. So yes, voter suppression legislation, voter suppression behavior is almost intentionally targeted to communities of color and low-income communities. But the corrosion of democracy has a broader sweep because the problem is once you start to break the machinery, it breaks for everyone using it. And that's why I think it has to be that we, we also remind Republicans that this is a danger to them as well. Uh, the, the area where they had to run that election, it was because the same incompetence and malfeasance that was used to deny the right to vote to millions of Georgians to have their full hearing, it also had the ancillary effect of affecting that election three separate times. Because those same tools can be used against you if they become part of how the machinery operates. We're going
2: to take a quick break now, but we'll be back after this to this live interview from the Code Conference with Stacey Abrams and Lauren Gro Wargo.
0: Searching for what to stream next? HBO Max is where all of HBO meets the greatest collection of movies, shows, and Max originals for everyone in the family. Discover something fresh to watch with new HBO series like Lovecraft Country from Jordan Peel, Misha Green, and J.J. Abrams, or The Undoing, starring Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant. You can also jump into a new Max original like Selena Gomez's new cooking show, Selena and Chef, or The Flight Attendant, a dark new comedic thriller starring Kaylee Cuoco. Ridley Scott's even producing a new series called Raised by Wolves. Whether you want to rewatch classic favorites or finally get into that show your friends have recommended a thousand times, HBO Max has something for everyone. Start streaming today and find your next favorite. Download the app or visit hbomax.com to start your free trial. If you're an
1: early adopter, you get that your devices and your connections need to be fast and help make your life better. But you might be forgetting one thing. Tech should be fair, too. Fairness isn't a new idea, but it is to wireless. That's where U.S. Cellular comes in. At U.S. Cellular, people come first. And that means a fast, reliable connection with no hidden requirements and no activation fees. They'll even pay you back for unused data. When you upgrade to U.S. Cellular, you upgrade to FAIR. Learn more at uscellular.com.
2: So let's talk a little bit about Georgia now because right now Georgia's gotten in the news and you, you came out and I think both of you had talked to me about this. This is pre the reproductive rights issues. Um, you have come out pretty strongly that, that tech, tech companies often boycott states, usually in the first, now media companies are right there too. You, you've talked about the idea of not boycotting these companies, which is something tech companies tend to do right away or typically more than other companies. Can you make the argument to tech people why they shouldn't, if they're, if they're for uh, reproductive rights,
3: why they shouldn't boycott? Or what, what's your thinking? Hello. I was
2: surprised. Okay, okay. <laughs> He's leaning forward, okay.
3: <laughs> I believe in boycotts. Uh, I grew up in Mississippi, I live in Georgia. I only get to vote, go outside and eat because of boycotts. So yes, I know they can work. But we have to remember that boycotts have to be directly connected to the goal. And the challenge with reproductive rights is that Roe v. Wade does not ban, overturning Roe v. Wade doesn't ban abortion. Overturning Roe v. Wade returns the authority to determine access to abortion to the states. And so even if Roe v. Wade is overturned, if you have not changed the composition of the legislature, then you cannot change the outcome. Because you can get one law reversed, but that does not stop a new law from taking effect. The only way to fundamentally change access to abortion and to make it the law of the land is to change the composition of the legislature and the governor in the state of Georgia. Boycotting doesn't do that, because what you do is you suck out resources and you actually remove potential voters who could make it better. It is better to stay, fix the voting system, because it was a 1.4% difference, even when Voter suppression was at its height, and we flipped 15 legislative seats during my election. We can do even more, and if we change that, then you actually change the long-term outcome, not only of reproductive choice, but actually maternal mortality, access to health care. We have to stop responding to the moment and actually think about the mission, and the mission for most of our states is to actually expand who gets to participate. That does not happen when the resources leave the state. It just doesn't, because that, that's what happened to the South, and it's why the South has remained mired in so many ways in a politics that has been very static and very conservative and very hostile, because the very people who could have helped change it left the playing field. There are times where that makes sense. This is not the time, I believe, when we actually have, are on the cusp of change. What do Democrats... I really like you guys. I, thank you. <laughs>
5: What do Democrats nationally misunderstand about politics and their political
3: opportunities in the South? To start. As a recent convert from Ohio, who is now a true Georgian.
2: Yeah.
3: Um, is
5: that like getting knighted?
3: <laughs> There's a process. that involves the Chattahoochee River. Um,
4: so I think what Americans need to understand is Georgia is the future of America. Um, in terms of the racial and ethnic composition, in terms of how our demography and how our conversation is is changing. And so I think there are a lot of lessons everybody from an Ohio Democrat to an Alaska Democrat to anybody running for president should take from Stacey's race and from from the state because the entire country is sort of moving towards that situation. In Georgia in 2026, whites go to 49% of the population. And um in
5: 2026, mm-hmm. you Georgia's majority minority.
4: Correct. Um, majority people of color. Mm-hmm. And and so I think what we did in our race is build a new coalition. We built a multiracial, multi-ethnic coalition. And it is not the future of Georgia, it's the now of Georgia. And that meant we did things differently. We have a lot of you know, startups and investors here. That means we didn't do the typical campaign playbook, which has been, you raise as much money as possible and you hold it so you can give it to some media comp, you know, consultants to put it up on TV in the last couple of weeks. That's been the playbook. Throw a little bit of money, visit a black church on Labor Day, Mm -hmm. you got your GOTV plan, et cetera. Uh, That was not our approach and I think it was a very different approach. It was a controversial approach. We spent money early. We had an intentional strategy to use the year-long primary to build for the general to start actually talking to general election voters in the primary and get them engaged early. We spent money on staff, spent a ton of money on digital, building lists, all of those things. And so why it's great to work with Stacey is she goes big, and we went big, and we, we raised more. And as investors know, as you invest in infrastructure, then you can scale it more rapidly. And then when you get into a larger revenue stage in the general election. You've got a foundation you've built on, and so when you look at sort of how you raise money in campaigns, we made early investments, which meant we had crappy press reports about low cash on hand, and uh, we we
5: we would never report in a decontextualized way like that. No,
4: not you, Ezra. <laughs> were there
5: were there Trump Abrams voters?
4: Um, there, not to my knowledge, but this is what there were there was the largest support level from white Georgia voters for Stacey Abrams. By not just a little, by a lot. So if anybody knows Georgia, one of our large Atlanta uh, counties is DeKalb County. It's where a city, part of the city of Atlanta is, and um, a very democratic county. You know. In 2014, some of you may have known, Jimmy Carter's grandson, Jason Carter, lovely human, and Sam Nunn's daughter, Michelle Nunn, ran for office. Those are big Georgia names. They got 55% of the white vote. Everybody thought, no way that this black woman should run. She shouldn't run. No way she'd be competitive in a general. No way white Georgians would vote for her. We heard this all day long for a year. Stacey got 69% of those white voters.
2: So. then talk, you about sort of what the modern election looks like. You use a lot of social media. You're obviously a compelling politician. Um, what, what does a modern election look like going forward? And then I, we do want to talk about 2020 and what the heck you're doing because I'm not clear. Um, what, talk about where, what, what does a modern election look like? Does it look like it's voted digitally? Does it look like people vote on cell phones? And then how does a co- politician approach
3: elections I think it has to begin with how do you get voters. And we used to say there is no path to victory, there's math to victory. Elections are math, that's it. You need more people to like you and do something about it than the other guy. And that means one of the things we did differently was that we used digital, we used technology to do persuasion. Typically, you don't persuade the people who should vote for you. We spend all of our time trying to convince Trump voters. What I said is, look, if a Trump voter likes what I say, you're welcome but I'm not going to change what I say to convince you to come on board. Instead, I'm going to use my time and our energy and the resources to tell people who already agree with me that they should do something about it, persuading them to vote. And I think a modern campaign understands that with the diffusion of information and the fracturing of our sense of common purpose that has unfortunately and been a part- The media landscape. Yeah, that, that you have to spend more time and more money on actually persuading people that voting matters. Because I think to Ezra's question about the nature of our democracy, people do feel distant from it. And if we want their engagement, they have to be persuaded that engagement matters. The second piece then becomes the architecture of how they actually cast their vote. I think there may come a time where we can get to the security of voting online. We are not anywhere near that. Uh, In fact, we need to return to the very analog of hand-marked paper ballots, I think, to secure. In fact, there was a story out today that North Carolina had online, for anyone who wanted it, the passwords to all of the systems for their voting system. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the systems that was actually investigated by by Homeland Security. Uh, Brian Kemp refused to let Homeland Security evaluate our system. And so before we move to digital voting, to online, to voting by your phone, we have to get the act of voting right again. Uh, And I think the last piece, so it's the process, it's the architecture, and then it's the auditing ability. And that's the most important piece. One of the different things about our campaign, and Lauren alluded to it, was that we did not let them call the election on election night. We have got to get past this idea that elections are decided by 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's just not true. We have provisional ballots, you have absentee ballots, you have mail-in ballots. We have to recognize that our elections, our future won't be decided in evening in time for a nightly broadcast. Mm-hmm. And one of the responsibilities then is for candidates not to deny the responsibility of elections, but we also have to allow the process to play out. And I think one of the parts of a modern election system will be that as we expand how people can cast their ballots, what they're doing in California and Oregon and Colorado, that means we have to teach patience in our process uh, because if we want more people to come on board, they have to believe there's a reason to do so, and they have to be able to trust that their vote will be counted and evaluated, and that the truth is actually told by the end of the day.
5: The next election that's coming up is 2020. Really? I've heard. Okay. Will you be running for anything
3: in that election? It's entirely possible. <laughs> what? Why is, What would it be? What would it be, yeah. If it you had to rank them it by probability. Office. It would be an office. To okay. be in office. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm, I'm not being coy. I do not. Being a little coy. I'm being funny, <laughs> not coy. <laughs> coy presumes I know what I want, and I'm not telling you. I, I, here's the thing I think we have a really strong slate of candidates for president. I think there are a handful of folks who are good people who should not be president. And for me, the conversation is. When we get to this next phase of the election, I'm not disquieted by the number of people running. It's a handful more than ran before, but it's not overwhelming and it's good for our democracy to have people who want to step up. But we are gonna hit a point where we start to winnow out who's actually viable and who's not. And for me, viability is, are you talking about the core issues of the day, for me, the underlying issues of voter suppression, but also do you have a plan for victory? Not a plan to beat Trump, but a plan to win America. And we are starting to see what those plans look like. Some people are better at announcing their plans than others, but we're seeing that play out. But it also means you understand the composition of the electorate. I will enter this race if I think that I can add value to it. If I do not think I add value, I won't run. And I don't have enough information at this moment to make that determination.
5: Let me ask you about another level of it though, which is the presidential race exerts tremendous gravity. But the Senate is important for Democrats Mm -hmm. too, and if there's gonna be a Democratic president, they're gonna need a Democratic Senate to get much done. Democrats have failed to recruit the strongest candidates in Montana with Steve Bullock, who's decided to run for president for an unclear reason to me. They've failed to recruit the strongest candidate in Texas with better work deciding to run for president, with John Hickenlooper, again, deciding for somewhat unclear reasons to run for president. Then potentially um, we don't know what uh, the strongest candidate in Georgia will do yet. There seems to be a difficulty Democrats are having getting folks to run for Senate as opposed to
3: the White House. Why do you think that is? Well, I can speak for myself and then I'll tell you what I think about the, the basic argument. I'll do the basic argument first the Senate races, most of the qualifying won't happen until next spring. The candidates who will be competing in those races, if they decide that they want to run, there is still time. There is a, there's a sense of urgency because we know how important the Senate is, but there's actually no political urgency to making that announcement now. And it's just not. There, there isn't. Because the Senate race, you can stand up a Senate race if you decide end of the, by basically by the fall that you want to run for the Senate any strong candidate can stand up a campaign and be ready for a primary if they have one, and if they're strong enough they may not have a primary, in which case they've got a lot more time. So that's true, and I think we need to remember that people like to think about many things, and the public may not like the sequence of the conversation. I am not running for the Senate because I don't want to be in the Senate. It is not because I want to run for president, it's not because I want to run for dog catcher. I made a decision early because I know there were a number of people who want to run for Senate who were waiting for me to decide, and they were showing me an amount of deference that I did not need, but I appreciate it and I want to be respectful of it. I've been in the legislature. It is an incredibly important job, and the Senate is structurally necessary for our success. It is not the job I want to do. Because when you run for the Senate, you need to plan to be there for six years, 12 years, 18 years. That is a complete transformation of the path I see for my life. And I don't think you run for office just because an office is there. I'm I'm in politics because there are things I want to accomplish, and I need jobs that will let me do that, and the Senate is not that job. The other thing is, I'm not hubristic enough to think I'm the only person who can win. There are other people who can win the Senate. If I've done my job as a leader in Georgia, what Lauren and I have put in place in terms of infrastructure, the playbook we have demonstrated—if it, it's true, another candidate can use it. And so my responsibility is to help the best candidate possible win that election, and that's my commitment.
2: But one thing, Lauren, you told me—you—I um, think people are surprised because not many people don't grab at these things immediately. I think that's what the shock mm-hmm. is. You say, "I just don't want to do it," which I think is surprising to a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Lauren, you said you don't want to work on politics anymore. You want to do this. You. You led a campaign that was pretty astonishing, that you got this. I don't know that I ever said that exactly to
4: you, Kara. Okay, all right, okay.
2: (laughs) You said something like that. It was surprising.
4: I mean, I am not a hired gun who just goes and works for anybody. Um, It's not how I've operated ever um, Mm -hmm. in my career. So I am selective about what I do. And it's, for me, coming... What we lived through in the year-and-a-half race, and for me as a human and an individual, in terms of thinking about how I would look people in the eye and how I would look at my child and having a level of power and influence in our party at this horrible time. Uh, for me, I knew that voting rights was not like the thing I signed up to do as I went into my political career. But I knew that what we witnessed was oh. so egregious, egregious is not the strong enough word, I'm sure Stacey has a much better word, so just horrible and that I was in a position of power to challenge that, uh, I felt like it was just duty. We just had to do it. Mm-hmm. And that we had to run it like a campaign and bring all of the like psycho in a good way that we have mm-hmm. to this effort. And so I'm doing that, but that doesn't preclude a whole lot of other things, you know, as a professional.
2: Would you run her presidential campaign?
4: Stacey and I have been friends and partners for a long time. And so I'll leave it at that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) We're going to take another break now, but we'll be back to Stacey Abrams and Lauren Groh-Wargo live on stage at Code after this.
1: Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are always ready to help you personalize your insurance plan so you can create a policy that fits your needs. You can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. And you can always call one of the State Farm agents in neighborhoods across the country. Get a great rate without sacrificing great service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
5: Stacey, you've written some, I think, quite interesting interventions into the identity politics debate. Something you hear a lot in Northern California. It's something that presidential candidates talk about disparagingly pretty often. What does identity politics mean to you? And what do you think we get wrong when we talk about it in politics?
3: The phrase identity politics has been, is a weaponization of the Democrats' structural advantage in elections from now into eternity. And Republicans recognized that the homogeneity of their party meant that they were left out of multiple conversations, and so instead of solving their internal trauma of not actually bringing more people into the fold, they instead do what they do extraordinarily well, which is brand this idea and make it a negative. That paying attention to the disadvantaged, the marginalized, the disconnected, and identifying their issues and connecting it to a political solution was somehow an invalid construct. Francis Fukuyama decided to dress it up in and he's a very smart man, but he decided to analyze it through a lens that said that if we just return to the issue of class, everything else will be satisfied. And I'm being deeply, deeply uh, disparaging about his analysis. It was much more complicated and thoughtful, but still wrong. Um, (laughs) Identity politics is simply this. We all have identities, but there are structural barriers that impede access to opportunity for certain communities. We know those are true, we know those are real, but we cannot fix them if we don't identify them. And identity politics is the practice of saying, I'm going to elect you in part because you see me. I'm going to hire you for this job of representing me because you can articulate the challenges I face. And I will not hire someone who refuses to acknowledge that I have a challenge. Those challenges tend to be grouped together. So we can talk about LGBTQ communities, communities of color, The physically disabled, you name the group, but if there is a legitimate cohort that faces barriers to opportunity, identity politics is a reductive phrase that is used to say that that should not be a legitimate reason for election. I would argue it is the only reason for election. You are hiring representatives. If they can't see you, how can they represent you? That is the very basic (laughs) construct of my argument. One
5: thing I want to pull out in that is that You note that there is a growing demographic advantage for the Democratic Party as a collection of different groups. Yes. And there can sometimes be among Democrats a sense of of demographic inevitability, right? They believe that the wave is just going to come for them and they don't actually have to do all that much except wait until the moment when the electorate changes to give them the advantage that the Republicans can't do anything about. You've talked about demography not being a destiny,
3: but a kind of opportunity. So, yes. I want to talk about what the difference between viewing it in those two ways is? Destiny says it's going to happen inevitably, opportunity says it can happen, but you've got to work for it. It's kind of like dating someone. Yes, you two may be in the same room, but he's, she or he or she is not going out with you unless you do something about it. And in democratic politics, we have waited for destiny to just put the person in front of us, and thus we are together, We've ignored the responsibility, which is why Lauren is so extraordinary as a leader of campaigns, which is that you've got to go and get it done. You've got to do the work of conversation. You've got to do the work of engagement. You've got to do the work of turnout. Voting does not happen because people just wake up and think I should vote. Voting happens because they believe something will come of it. They are giving of their time. They are giving of their trust. They are investing their hope. They have to believe there is something that will come of it. And those very demographies that we're waiting to emerge have been the most disassociated from real opportunity. And so we have to recognize that if we want to convert that energy and that change into actual destiny, we've got to do the work to make it so. All
2: right, last question and we'll get to uh, audience questions. How do you think tech has impacted of this. Lauren, you start and Stacey, you finish. What do you think tech is responsible for in a negative way and possibly in a positive way going forward?
4: Well, the the first thing I'm going to say is not exactly tech's fault. I think it's Republican austerity government has been part of the way they've broken election system in this country and made them vulnerable. Uh, There's certainly a laundry list of examples I could give you in Georgia, you know, leaking data, letting data get hacked, lack of data integrity, so that's not tech's fault, that is austerity government bundled together with a, you know, hatred for African-Americans in the South, sort of, but I think the tech conversation on how we vote, if we had thoughtful leaders, if we had governors like Stacey who want to think about how do we bring tech in to invest and partner with government to have the best-in-class security and those things, so I think tech could be really part of that solution if we had government agencies and elected officials who were thinking that way. So that's one thing. And then, you know, as an operative, obviously, um, things have just changed a lot since I've been doing it. I'm 39. I started this when I was 22. And in terms of, you know, how we do targeting, how we do communications, and I think sort of the media fragmentation um, creates just so many opportunities to reach communities that um, beyond sort of a field contact and a door knock, we can now not only find them through that um, sort of traditional way, but also through how we do you know, targeting on Spotify and how we, how we engage in digital advertising. Um, so, I think, so I think I've seen a lot of good in terms of, especially in a campaign like Stacey's, where it hadn't been done before. And so we had to sort of create a new model. And so we, just did, we invested really broadly in all different types of platforms, um, we were on, you know, white country music radio, you know, and we were on, um, you know, Pandora. You know, we were sort of across across the spectrum trying to understand how we could really reach people and into new new audiences.
2: What was the second part of your question, Kara? Do you see any negative aspects of it, like what happened with Cambridge Analytica, the abuse of... <sighs>
4: I mean, everything gets used for bad in our sector. I mean, when you have, you know, people still send out robocalls lying to people. So, I, you know, I think I have a very high, like, it's all (laughs) effed up. Like, like Cambridge Analytica, sure, you know, our side um, um, does a lot of things. Look, I mean, I said two things at the beginning of our campaign. I said, one, Stacey wasn't going to get assassinated, and two, Russia wasn't going to hack my effing campaign. Neither of those things happened. They tried both, right? They tried both. And so I think part of what, Tech has to understand, I think what operatives have to understand, it's so, it's a battlefield. You know, we're dealing with an enlivened KKK, an emboldened KKK, we're dealing with really active foreign interference. Um, so you can't just go run for Senate because it's available and just go hire a campaign manager off the street and everything's good. I just, know. like you gotta wanna do these jobs. You better have a team that's like ready to take the bullets I mean, this, was, this is like no joke, I, I, and I don't say that to dissuade anybody from running for office, but just that this is why I like Stacey. I mean, she doesn't make a flippant decision. These are really big decisions. It's nasty out there we got all the social media folks in the room, you know that. But, that, but that means, you know, that's a great tool for us with law enforcement. You know, we were actively working with law enforcement the entire campaign, and there would have been a KKK threat against Stacey Abrams no matter what, but we were able to use social media to track those folks down and make sure somebody was knocking on their doors. So I don't sort of see it at all black and white. I think it's really complicated, and um, we got to use the tools, and I'm all for being as aggressive as we possibly can in terms of how we use those
3: tools. All right, Stacey, finish up. The very quick addition I would make is that there's an asymmetry to access uh, of technology and access to what technology provides. And that asymmetry tends to disadvantage the very people who are most in need of its capacity. What I wish tech understood is it has the ability to help even the playing field more aggressively. I don't see it happening as, as often as it should, and that's one of the challenges I have with boycotts. Boycotts remove from the playing field access for those who are most in need of it and whether that's resources or information or simply knowledge that something is possible this asymmetry gets worse and worse over time because those who've learned to take advantage have ratcheted up their advantage and those for whom it is a harm it's not just a it's not a neutral it is a harm Uh, when you've got three streams of information good information bad information and disinformation the asymmetry that happens when no good information gets to you and you're trying to discern the difference between bad and disinformation. That is a terrible choice to have to make, and often the result is people exempt themselves from the conversation. That means they're exempting themselves from our democracy. That is a danger, but it's also a solvable problem, and I wish tech would be more engaged, and I think they are. Uh, There were tech companies who came to the table, not just to help our campaign, but to really help think about the infrastructure. But as we move towards a more modern electoral system, we have to be intentionally forward-thinking in how do we address not simply what is possible, but what is necessary to make possible real for everyone.
2: Okay, great. Questions from the audience? Teddy? Oh, here, right here. Go ahead. Uh,
4: Hi, my name is Kana Hammond. I'm from Omidyar Network. And as an ethnic studies major who went to work in tech, I'm really happy you're here and and teaching all of us about this really important issue. Um, But my question is about regulation. It's something we've been hearing a lot about today, both from companies being uh, skeptical of it, uh, both from companies inviting it and wanting to work more closely with government. As people who actually know how the legislative process works, where would you draw the line in terms of what's government's responsibility and what's company's responsibility and employee's responsibility to get ahead and set the right rules and policies so that government doesn't have to come in um, and clean up messes?
3: I mean, that's our job. Uh, But I, I will say this. I think we have to stop thinking of regulatory schemes as punishment. Regulatory schemes come in place when an entity or a structure becomes too large to effectively self regulate, or when too many people need it and their decision making and determinations do not, they don't have sufficient information to make those choices. There is nothing about the technology space that hasn't had a precursor example of regulation. We have regulated information, it's called the, FEC, the FCC. We've regulated the delivery of information. We simply have to recognize that I do believe now is time that the maturity of the tech industry writ large is so is such that it is now too large to leave it to best intentions. It is, and too many people intersect with it for individuals to be making those choices. And so I do believe it's a common cause. If anyone believes that government makes decisions without the information and the advice of the industry, You've never been to D.C. or to a state capital. And so it is a joint enterprise, but I do believe that we have reached a place where regulatory uh, structures are necessary which, to maintain... Which one? Is it antitrust, or is it just... I think it's all of the above, because part there's delivery, there's content, uh, there's the, the very power. I mean, i we I was talking about power, the very power. Now, I don't think we have reached the place where we know enough to determine the tipping point of antitrust in part because some of these things are so opaque as to i, I don't want us to make decisions where we're simply breaking it up the terrible analogy i use with with Ezra was look it's like trouble with tribbles you don't want it to proliferate just because you're trying to solve one problem you create many more and so i think and this isn't as simple as ba- ba- breaking up the baby bells or breaking up a railroad system we really do have intersectionalities and interdependent technologies that I think it's very naive to say that you can simply say, now you shall disperse. We're not ready for that. I think the first step is regulation. I do think we should have an eye towards antitrust, and I do think there are some companies that are reaching a, a, an inflection point where antitrust conversations can happen faster, but I want us to begin with the regulatory.
2: Well, that was a complex and nuanced answer, which is unusual Sorry. for politicians. <laughs> Go
1: ahead. Hey, hey Stacey, I, I uh, appreciate Teddy, it. Teddy Schleifer here from Recode. Um, you met with Beto O'Rourke last week in I did. Georgia. Um, a lot of candidates are sort of seeking your stamp of approval on voting rights issues. Um, Beto O'Rourke came out. He says he wants to see the national uh, voting percentage, turnout percentage. It'll be 65%, pretty high. A, I'm curious if you think that's realistic. And B, of, as an observer on the sidelines right now, which of the 2020 candidates do you think is kind of offered the most compelling platform on voting rights?
3: Not going to answer the second question.
2: How about uh, you, Laura? Sure. But... Or, no, yeah. What? Lauren can answer it. Lauren, do you have
3: one? <laughs> I like many. <laughs>
1: we're, trying, we're trying to make some news. So
3: well, here, Here's the thing. I am pleased that everyone I've met with has not only made a commitment to this conversation, but has done the work. They've done the work in different ways. And again, we are early in this campaign. And so that's why I'm not going to pick and choose. I think we've seen a number of different ways that this has been made manifest. The first part of the question was,
1: is 65 percent real Yes,
3: 65. it is I mean look, there are nation states that hit 70, 75 percent. Part of it is the investment in the elections. We do not invest in disadvantaged communities. We do not invest in non-voters. We have I mean there's, there's a sense there's a there's a myth of efficiency in the way we run elections where it's the most efficient thing to go back to the people who voted before. The problem is, if you're only going back to the people who voted before, you're you're leaving out a larger and larger group of people. I believe that if we had campaigns and we had a campaign infrastructure that actually invested in and made real and manifest the ability to vote, the ability to be reached, and held our politicians accountable because they actually know we're going to show up, yes, I do think we can hit 65. And I think that because I just ran a statewide election in a midterm year where we hit 65%.
5: What do you think about the effort to make voting day a holiday?
3: I think it makes sense. I don't think it's a solution to every problem but it brings into sharp relief one of the most critical issues. It has to be a paid holiday. It can't simply be a holiday because for a lot of folks it's not a factor of whether or not they can get there. Can they afford to vote?
1: Hi, my name is Burt Blackrack and I had um, a story to share. My grandfather was the first African-American judge, civil judge in Canada and I grew up hearing a lot of the stories and what it took to um, put forth his mission. So I don't have a question, but I just wanted to share my deep appreciation and love for what you've done, what you're doing, and how you're educating all of us on on the movement. I know how much much you put up with.
3: Thank you.
2: Thanks, Bert. Thank you. Last question.
0: Thank thank you for being here today. I was curious how Democrats and political parties in general can win back the center because it feels like we've become more polarized in our politics over time and there's a real center that's left out of the conversation. Uh, You know, just thoughts on that
3: generally. I think that there is a false narrative that the center has been abandoned. What What is often described as being too far to the left tend to actually have fairly broad beliefs. So most Americans want access to health care. Most Americans want reproductive choice. Most Americans think that if you go to work, you should be paid for that, and that the pay you receive should actually cover the cost of living. Those are not leftist ideas. Those are centrist ideas that happen to be espoused by a party under a system where we bifurcate into left and right. Now, what the right has done, there there has been a very different shift to the right, but I do not believe the center has been abandoned. One of the parts of our campaign was that I had the same conversation with middle-class white women, poor white men in North Georgia, poor black folks in South Georgia, middle-class Latinos, everyone. We had the exact same conversation I wasn't running a leftist campaign. I was running a campaign that talked about the issues and the values. But we've been trained to see ourselves as polarized based on our party identification, and we spend less time thinking about the policies that we're actually arguing over. That is not to say that there aren't, part, there aren't policies that are being provided on the left that are a bit more far left than we're used to. But by and large, if you listen to most of the things candidates are talking about, it's not far from the center. In fact, it is, it's exactly in the center. The center is that most people want it, and therefore our lives will be better if we have it. And so I actually push back on that idea. And that's not to say polarization doesn't exist, but I don't think the polarization is center versus left or right. The polarization is mine versus yours. And that's really become, I think, the, the tension that we see, but we argue it as though it's a centrist argument.
2: All right, last question. What could the one thing tech could do, this audience could do, Each of you, Lauren first and then Stacy.
4: I think folks in in tech need to get behind common sense voting rights reform. We need tech leaders to talk about hand marked paper ballots um, and why that's so important in in terms of election integrity. And I think uh, we need tech to put their money where their mouth is in terms of voting rights because no matter where you are on the political spectrum, uh, you all want a workforce that is educated and can be a full citizen and because it's not just Georgia Georgia we just have the most egregious example but it's all over this country there has been an intentional campaign led by Republicans to to undermine democracy and thwart the right to vote so that so that means we can't just, you know, make a small contribution to your favorite presidential campaign, that means folks have got to go all in, in my opinion, because it's all at stake. You know, we're looking at an underfunded census, we're looking at uh, redistricting, we're looking at a presidential, sure, but then a whole bunch of gubernatorials in 2022. And as we look at the next decade and the uh, demography that's changing and sort of where our politics is gonna go and the unevenness of power and where people are moving, none of this has ever been easy this is not a new fight this is just the new iteration of the fight of our country and so I, people got to throw down in my opinion they've got to they've got to go big we you know we've got foundations who are under attack from the trump administration we have nine subpoenas that were filed against us they're the other side is throwing everything they possibly have to shut us down, to shut our friends down, to shut down people who are trying to fight for democracy. So this is not the time to cower in the corner at all, uh, but it's gonna take bold leaders. It's gonna take people standing up to say, I understand that talking about democracy may seem like a partisan issue, but I'm gonna do it. And there's actually a right side and a wrong side on this right now. And you know, we have a tagline in Georgia right now, which is stay and fight, because sure, this is about abortion access, but this is about health care, this is about are we going to demonize and criminalize doctors, uh, you know, what are we going to do about the future of democracy in Georgia and across the country, so we, we need people to partner with us and institutions across this country that are making that fight in a big way, not a small way.
3: Okay, Stacey? Last I, I think she said almost all of it. The other piece I would add is you all are going to be visited by candidates not only running for president but for Senate, for Congress, ask them these questions. Ask them about voter suppression, about our democracy and what they plan to do. You all have extraordinary power to not only shape the technology, but also shape the conversation, and I want more people in your position to understand the influence you can have on all of the people who are making these decisions. Not simply the question of regulation or antitrust uh, and monopolies, but really the conversation of what kind of country do we have and if they know that you care about the issues that Lauren articulated, that puts more pressure on them to actually have the conversation and live it out and make it real for all of us.
4: And there's one, I have one additional piece that we're talking about on regulation, is that look at how your platform is being used to subvert campaign finance laws. And that's, in terms of enforcement on that, that is to the FEC and others, but uh, in our race, there were huge right-wing platforms using Facebook and. Um, um, other means to spread a message that was directly coordinated with the Kemp campaign, but they are not registered super PACs, they are not registered with any entity, and um, they get spun in a whole bunch of different ways, and it's likely millions of dollars worth of communications that are never reported. And so ultimately, I think we've got to lift that up a whole bunch of different ways. That's going to be the big challenge, I think. And a lot of it we didn't fully understand until post-election in terms of the scope I think for campaign operatives, what we have to understand is the playing field is all voters, right? And so we did more research. We did a, an incredible amount of research, checking in on the far right, checking in on sort of all segments. I'm glad we did that, because we were tracking, tracking what was happening there. But in terms of how people are using your platforms, whether or not you realize it to subvert campaign finance laws, it's happening all the time.
2: Great.
5: Lauren Growargo, Stacey Abrams. Thank you very much. Thank you
2: very much. Thanks again to Stacy and Lauren for joining us on stage and to Ezra for conducting that interview with me. And thanks to you all for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. If you like this episode, we really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure you check out our other podcasts, Recode Media, Pivot, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then.
1: HBO Max brings all of HBO to your fingertips, plus an epic list of new Max originals. Whether you're into animation, classic movies, or binge-worthy series— HBO Max's suggested collections are curated by real humans, not robots. So you find the right thing to watch every time. With thousands of options for you and the family to choose from, it's the streaming platform of your dreams. HBO Max, where HBO needs so much more. Start streaming now at hbomax.com.